Hi there, I'm Sean P. Lodishinessy, and welcome to my podcast, The New Abnormal, which focuses on hope, community and resilience, alongside illuminating other issues impacting business and society. Debating these subjects and the context within they sit has meant I've had some really fascinating discussions with guests including activists, creatives, writers, psychologists, entrepreneurs, philosophers, researchers, lecturers and futurists. And of course, my guests also illuminate their own personal stories regarding how they got to where they are now, how they view the world around them and why they do what they do. Read my background, I'm a strategist, public speaker and author. My first book, The Post-Truth Business, focused on trust and ethics. The second, Influences and Revolutionaries on Multi-Sector Innovation. I've given speeches everywhere from deepest Siberia to European music festivals to media conventions in the Middle East, fashion events in Australia and trend gatherings in the US. Anyway, let's crack on with the latest episode as my guest is waiting. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by an absolutely fascinating individual, Joanna Hoffman. Joanna is an urbanist, a researcher and writer working in the space between design, planning, fiction and futures. She holds an MLA in landscape architecture and environmental planning from UC Berkeley and has worked for urban design firms on award-winning projects around the world. Her first book, Speculative Futures, Design Approaches to Navigate Change, Foster Resilience and Co-Create the Cities We Need, is distributed by Penguin Random House. So, Joanna, hi, and uh, how are you? Hi, Sean. I'm doing really well. Such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, no, no, thank you. And I think this is amazing timing because uh, the book is actually out tomorrow. So uh, <laughs> I can't wait. It's actually one is uh, winging its way towards me even as we speak. So I'm very much looking forward to it. But um, Joanna, just to go straight into this, because it's such a fascinating area that you specialize in. Go on then. Speculative futures. What's it all about? Great question. So speculative futures on a basic level are design and storytelling approaches to create high resolution visions of potential realities. And so they're ways of really trying to feel into what the future can be. What is it going to look like? What does it smell like? What does it impact in terms of my daily life? What does it really mean for my relationships, the way that I go to work, what I do for work? And so by making them high resolution, these things that feel personal, tactile, applied to how we live our lives, the idea is that it really increases our capacity to collapse the distance between tomorrow and today. And in doing so, that allows us to see what the ramifications are of the choices that we make in the present moment and really refine the choices that we make so that they can and take us on trajectories towards which we want to actually go. Sounds utterly compelling, to put it very, very mildly. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to leap into the book, because I say I know the book is literally um, uh, imminently about to sort of uh, leap into uh, uh, every possible uh, good bookshop that one can imagine around the world. So perhaps just unpack your approach to it uh, and how the book is you know, constructed, how you've laid it out um, and um, yeah, sort of illuminate that for us. Yeah. So, you know, as you said in your uh, sweet and generous introduction, I am an urbanist. I'm a designer. I'm an urban strategist. And so the way 
way that I have come into the speculative space because it's a pre-existing field. People have been doing it in different capacities and in different disciplines for you know many decades, the better part of a century and arguably much longer. As an urban designer, I come at it through the way that architecture, development, engineering, urban planning has been using it. And that's in a way that unfortunately is oftentimes used for prediction and persuasion. And in those mechanisms, there's a way of implementing the speculative process, really just imagining what can be, which is what architecture, urban development is all about. We come up with ideas that don't exist and we find out ways to make them into reality. Unfortunately, a lot of times when people use those processes, they do it in ways that can end up excluding or disenfranchising or displacing people over time. And that set up a context where a lot of the social and economic inequities that we really see today have started to metastasize into crises. They have their origins in a lot of ways that people have used speculation in my fields over the decades. So being a practitioner, I you know started to see that there were these longstanding problems that were tied in certain ways to the way that people use speculative process. And then in doing different projects that were a little bit more provocatively oriented, when I was frustrated when I was working in you know more traditional organizations and, and firms, I would take the opportunity to say, okay, what are other ways of doing this work? How can we create more collaborative conversations with people about these changes that are happening really fast, climatic change, different aspects of you know machine learning, and create yeah. spaces where we can imagine together what we might prefer. I just started doing these kind of as like art installations and little side projects. And then I realized that there is a whole world and field and array of practitioners who are doing this amazing work. So for me, this book was really an attempt to one, just contextualize the work that I had been doing kind of accidentally on the side and finding out that it was part of this much wider world and tradition of practice. And in putting it together in this way of talking about its impact on cities, the hope is really to articulate that it's mechanisms for us to democratize the city making process. We all have the capacity to imagine. It's literally storytelling, one of the oldest technologies that humans have. And so how do we harness these imaginative capacities and storytelling tools that we're born with, literally, and use them to identify ways to co-create cities together? So the book is a combination of my own professional experience and reflections on practice. It's contextualizing that work within the larger kind of field and academic research that's been going on about future stuff. And it's looking at case studies to kind of compare and contrast what are the challenges of doing this work. It's not as if speculative futures are civil bullets or a panacea, but there are ways to implement these to make our cities more collaborative, equitable, resilient spaces. And what are examples of how people are doing that and what can we learn from them? Yeah. How interesting. I'll ask you for, for perhaps for a couple of uh, sort of uh, specific examples in a moment. But I mean, looking at the book, uh, uh, again, you've got some fantastic people in there naturally being very uh, uh, sort of uh, laudatory about it. I mean, Julian Bleek, a co-founder of the Near Future Laboratory, says that uh, what we learn in Joanna's Speculative Futures book is about an evolution in what futures, plural, means and how future is now a verb. We future means we imagine, we explore, we visit, we investigate, and we build possibilities. So from the point of view of that, uh, Joanne, uh, again, it's a really obvious question, but I mean, are there um, specific uh, cities, 
towns, urban areas, other areas that you point to as being prime examples, if you like, of sort of, you know, best cases? So mm. anyone out there that you point to that you think here are examples of uh, uh, of the kind of urban planners and city planners, et cetera, that are really doing it well? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's hard to point at one particular case that's doing it well, because each city is so particular, right? Sure. And so the experience of assessing these different case studies was really saying, like, what is happening at this particular location? And assessing how those tools change according to one location or another. One project that I profile that was just a really fascinating and powerful example comes from the Superflex Studio. They did a 2017 project with the United Arab Emirates, really trying to create an experiential future exploration of what alternative energy trajectories could do in that nation. The UAE is a very particular kind of place. Sure. It's not organized that way where a prime minister can essentially go in and make an executive decision. And there's not going to be too much debate or pushback from other people in the wider um, governmental system. So even though that project was an amazing example of how feeling into the future can be used to shape national level conversations, I wouldn't pretend to say that that would be an example that is going to translate perfectly into a different situation. Another example that has been such an amazing project to dive deeper into in the research and writing of this book is located in Los Angeles, a neighborhood called Lemert Park. And this was really spearheaded by community members in Lemert Park who have been doing, you know, visioning community building action work there. And they worked with students at USC to basically use different speculative futures tools to envision how emerging technologies like augmented reality and autonomous transit could be used to really celebrate and embrace and empower the community members who have been living there for a long time. It's a black and brown community. It's facing a lot of issues with gentrification. And so the proactive visioning process was something that was really about co-creation. It was community building. It was grounded very much in the stories and the lives of people in that particular spot. And after that process was over, people, because it was so much of a co-created process, have been pushing the work forward over time, you know, getting different grants and they're pushing forward an effort to prototype autonomous transit vehicles as free community shuttles. And they're doing it in a way that's about skill building with local youth. So those are two very different scales of examples, still using the same basic tool sets. And yet the Lemert Park example is one that's very much about rooting stories in place so that they can be perpetuated over time. And I would argue that that's the same case to a certain degree at the United Arab Emirates case. And yet they're very different in the way that they are translated in large part, one, because of the scale at which those projects operated, and two, just the different ways in which those countries and, you know, Lemur Park as a neighborhood, the ways in which they're organized. So I think being very sensitive to just the context that we are existing in is essential. And these are really tool sets. Again, like they're not going to solve the massive changes that are facing our governance systems, our infrastructural context, and yet they are tool sets so that you know, as we learn more about them as individuals, communities, you know, and potentially as larger reasons, I think it's about increasing our futures literacy, essentially. Again, the longer that we take to explore what potential futures can be, the more we take time to really proactively explore what they could become for us, the more resilient we become. Because as individuals, when we really 
you know, take the time to say, okay, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100, what might reality become? It's a way of really challenging status quo conditions and conventional thinking. The more that we Mm. do that, the more that we can augment our own personal senses of agency and capacities for self-determination. That really increases our resilience on an individual level. And then when we do that work together, with our communities, with our larger societies, that can make us more socially resilient. And that's one of, I think, the most important and valuable capacities that we can have in terms of navigating these really accelerating scales, scopes, and speeds of change that we're facing. Um, Things are changing so quickly. How can we develop the capacity as groups to adapt to those changes as they come? Imagining the future together, articulating preferred trajectories of change is a really powerful way of building the trust, the common language, the shared values that can really augment that social resilience. Yeah, yeah. If I need just one of the points you made um, a couple of minutes ago um, that was really, really um, fascinating and also links into, again, one of the um, many people that uh, obviously quoted in the book. I mean, Richard Florida, uh, author of Rise of the Creative Class, he said, in order to change our cities and the world, we need to first imagine a better future, a future we might not have imagined at all. Joanna's uh, book is a guidebook to getting us there, one that will help us move beyond the pessimism and the polarization of our time and build a better, more caring communities we need. I mentioned Richard there um, because of the point you made um, about gentrification. So obviously he also wrote um, things like the new urban crisis. And I remember years ago, I went down to Melbourne with Richard to, to give a speech with him um, along with Tyler Brule uh, when he'd just actually just written Rise of the Creative Class that yeah. obviously really sort of made his name. And he then spent, I think, many years uh, traveling around talking about sort of uh, exactly that point. But just that if you like um, more of a sort of a here and now issue, how do you look at issues like gentrification and how that is impacting on, as you mentioned earlier on, sort of you know uh, current communities that may be displaced by those wishing to uh, perhaps you know impose their own sort of uh, viewpoints and ways of living on them? Yeah, amazing and essential question. Um, one of the aspects of being a trained urban designer, urbanist planner, is that it's a lot about looking about how people have planned in the past, right? You have to look at the plan, understand the history. And when I think about gentrification, oftentimes I think about the reasons why there are social and economic disparities so intensely in place, definitely in the United States and also other parts of the world. And I think about you know, the phenomenon of urban renewal, which for people who are listening, if you're not familiar, it was a trend of urban development that really took over in the 20th century in the United States and for sure abroad. It's been touched uh, in cities all over the world. And it was a frame of development that really argued for more kind of de-densifying cities. At the time, cities were often denser places. And the argument was that if you could kind of, quote unquote, clean them up, make them greener, (laughs) wider boulevards, you know, quote unquote, safer places to live, then life would be better. That would be a better condition for people in urban spaces. Unfortunately, a lot of areas that were targeted for redevelopment were often poorer. In countries like the US, they were often black and brown and people in those spaces were rarely um, consulted. They were often just straight out evicted. And so a lot of researchers over the years, one in particular who I love, her work is tremendous, Mindy Fullylove, they cite and 
define that impact of being displaced in such a process as root shock. The idea with root shock is that like a tree kids is uprooted and therefore harmed as a result. The replanting process, especially when you do it without help, is really difficult. And it's much more challenging to create the economic and social strength that communities who were not displaced could have built. So in countries like the United States, for sure, and this manifests in different ways in different countries around the world, people who have been displaced in those different periods of time, which again really dominated development in the 20th century, have a yeah. lot less generational wealth, a lot less social capital. And so yeah, yeah. even though those decisions were made in you know half a century ago, sometimes longer, their impacts are still being felt. So when we're talking about impacts like gentrification today and new projects and how can we adapt to them, I think contextualizing the ways that we have built in urban space in the past is an essential part of that. And you know, one of the fascinating parts of doing research and writing for this book was finding out that, you know, the origins of the urban renewal movement can be traced to this one guy named Ebenezer Howard. He came up with these ideas that he called the garden city. And it was kind of a diagram. And he had this whole kind of descriptive spiel of like, this would be great for cities. Ebenezer Howard was in turn, really influenced by a science fiction book called Looking Backward. I think 2000 to 1887, it was written by this guy, Edward Bellamy. And he yeah. had this whole utopian vision for, he focused on Boston. And it was a big deal when it came out, this book. It was like the third national bestseller in the States um, after Ben-Hur and Uncle Tom's Cabin. So this guy, Ebenezer Howard, was influenced by this sci-fi story. And that in turn ended up shaping so much of the ways that we build our cities and resulting in a lot of the social and economic inequities that are making life really difficult and sparking things like gentrification today. So when I think of gentrification and how to move forward and creating spaces that are more equitable, because we do need new development in our cities, we do need to you know, emphasize and support and revitalize our infrastructure. We are way more populous as a species. We need more space for all of us to live. But the problem when really narrow visions of potential futures are extrapolated to wider scales and you know the wider population is not invited or has an active role in articulating what those visions are, the repercussions and the impacts can be devastating both in the near term and then longer over time as well. So what I think speculative futures tools can really offer us are ways of co-creating those visions together. Because if we don't co-create them together, the impacts can often be quite devastating. Yeah. And it, I totally pick up on the, the point you made there that uh, perhaps um, everyone doesn't want to live in a smart city. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also just what a smart city means, I think, is very different from yeah. one group to another, right? If we talk to somebody who works at Google or has, you know, a good amount of investment in different technological companies, it's going to mean one thing. And if you talk to somebody who is not involved in those worlds or feels excluded by that kind of cultural trajectory and language, yeah, it's going to mean something very different. Like, can smart cities also just be people who are connected to their neighborhoods and their landscapes and understand how to be in a reciprocal relationship with those systems? That's one definition of smart cities. Yep, but is yep. it one that we share? Mm. And then in, in terms of the book and actually um, like the angle of promoting it, um, perhaps just talk about that. I, I know you're uh, speaking soon at the uh, Long Now Foundation. Uh, so perhaps just yeah, tell us about that and uh, any other, other things that you're doing to uh, do what all authors have to do, give their book a good old push. 
Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. The Lung Now Foundation talk will be speaking there on the 12th. If you're in the Bay Area, people listening to this, you're more than invited to come. It will also be, I think, live streamed at the same time. I'll be doing a talk at Cal Poly Pomona on the 10th. Um, If you find me on LinkedIn, which the name is just Johanna Hoffman, I'm posting about things there. I'll be giving a chat at USC on the 19th. Yeah, so kind of bouncing around and and doing small chats with people like you as well. I'll be on a couple of different podcasts, hopefully coming out soon. So yeah, posting about that stuff on different social media links and would welcome all questions, comments, feedback. I think I find these tools fascinating and people respond to them in really different ways. So I think the most amazing part about conversations like this is hearing what people have to say. They reach people in really different ways. Some people don't like them. Some people think that they're a waste of time. And yet I think there's also really amazing feedback about different ways that people are using them that I would never have even thought of. <laughs> One of those. And I know, by the way, that um, we're up against it time-wise. I know you're a sort of busy person uh, charging around getting ready for the book's launch. But just in the last few minutes that we have available to us, um, what about um, perhaps some um, sort of the um, organizations uh, or universities or uh, consultancies, et cetera, that, that you find fascinating in this space? Are there any, for instance, particular courses that, that at the moment are really, really leading the way that, and that you're uh, an admirer of or any particular, say, organizations that are, that are doing this in a really uh, dynamic manner? Yes, definitely. I mean, you mentioned Julian Bleeker earlier on. I think he's just such a wonderful and thoughtful practitioner. So he's coming out with a book in the near future that's about design fictions. Um, I was on a workshop uh, call with him and a bunch of other amazing practitioners last Friday. So that was kind of facilitated by Arizona State University, which is doing a lot of interesting stuff with futures work. I'll be speaking at a conference of theirs at the beginning of November. Um, called Anticipation. It's uh, Anticipation. They do it kind of every year, but this year it's focused, yeah, on, again, a lot of futures aspects. Um, The University of Houston has a lot of futures-oriented stuff going on. Um, OCAD in Toronto, they have some amazing programs as well. Kind of the granddaddy of it all, James Dater on certain levels. He, I think, is now officially retired from the University of Hawaii, and yet there's still, I think, one of the only PhD programs in the world. There are a couple, but that's one where you can do deeper study. But I think a lot of what I find really exciting about speculative futures, for sure, you can get trained and it's being housed in certain academic spaces, but it's how people are practicing it in the world. And I think that's been really one of the most valuable parts of this project is getting to see how other people do it on the ground and how a lot of times it's not even necessarily things that people would call speculative futures so much, even though it totally is. So I think a lot of times just any community that is re-envisioning what they want to be, that is a speculative futures tactic. And what I think these particular tool sets can do is sometimes heighten the ways that we explore the personal ramifications of what those practices can be so we can invite different groups 
to be a part of that process with us because it can be really easy, I think, to just talk to others who are very similar to us. And yeah, I think yeah. that we already have a common language built around ideas, values, concepts, identities. You know, that process of collaboration can just be a lot more fluid. And yet we don't just live with other people who are exactly like us in our communities. Even if we live in very small towns, we're still affected by decisions and processes that are made at different scales. So I think the challenge and the excitement and the possibility of creating more resilient futures is really learning how to collaborate and co-create with people who are not necessarily speaking the same language or have the same experiences as us. So I think these tools, when it comes down to envisioning what the future can be, when we make them personal, when we make them narrative, when we really explore, like, what does it mean to, like, have a cup of noodles in the year 2025 when like maybe machine learning is going to be navigating and intermediating my experience of ordering food. Like let's get specific, right? (laughs) When we do that, when we talk about what it means for what we eat, how we go on dates, what's up in terms of like being a two-year-old walking down the road and what they see. I think that's where we can start to find our common human ground. And I think that allows for different ways of collaborating that yeah, can help us help each other, basically. Because at the end of the day, like the future is not decided. But I think when we see how dystopian it can really look out there today, it's easy to accept the fact that it's, you know, already going to be dark. But when we kind of start to play with the future and see it as this possibility space, I think we can start to embrace more and more the fact that it's not predetermined. Like the future is a process. I think that's why, you know, and Julian's really... um beautiful description of the book that you quoted earlier on like it's how to future it is an act it's a process it's a path we can walk that path together because we all have the ability to imagine so these are particular tools that can i think be kind of tool sets basically a frame of reference for how we can do that with each other again it's something that we all naturally do how can we do that more effectively a little bit more collaboratively with each other Fantastic. Um, well, I mean, it does sound so, so interesting. I mean, I'll just um, give another couple of the or, or read out another couple of the uh, wide number of uh, amazing quotes of the book. So the UNESCO chair in future studies uh, says in this remarkable book, Joanna tells the stories of city futures, a journey of past, present and future. Speculative Futures Illuminates the Way. Stuart Candy, PhD Associate Professor of Design at Carnegie Mellon, says anyone who aspires to more vibrant and resilient futures at all scales should read this book, and I hope they will. Um, so just everyone's clear, by the way, in terms of the listeners, uh, so they're clear where they can track you down. Um, Joanna, perhaps just to clarify that. Where, where are you on a social media, etc.? I exist on the internet. You can... Find me on places like LinkedIn. I'm also a little bit on Instagram, Johanna Hoffman on Instagram. I'm Johanna E. Hoffman. There's a bunch of stuff um, about the book, additional resources on my website, which is johannahoffman.com. There's kind of basic frameworks for implementation. There's more design resources. There's more information on like the details of speculative futures. So if you're looking to dive deeper into some of the projects, other practitioners, different ways of using them syllabi there's a lot of stuff there so trying to make it you know available and accessible in different sorts of ways fantastic 
Well, in that case, um, all I'll say is uh, to Joanna Hoffman, the urbanist, researcher and writer working in the space between design, planning, fiction and futures, who examines how we can imagine our cities at every level as individuals in communities and on a professional scale and whose epic book, Speculative Futures, is out now. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much, Sean. This was so fun. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. Just so you know, the trends and insights discussed in these podcasts link to my speeches. Check out seanpdc.com for more info and to ongoing cultural and social research conducted by brandpositive.org. Till next time, goodbye.